You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. My name is Dr. Leo Stevens, and today I am proud to be welcoming a guest who has turned adversity into opportunity at many stages throughout her life and career. In the early 1990s, Alana Finn was a disengaged and even troublesome high school student, reacting to a challenging home environment and her own strong independence streak that did not mesh well with structure and authority. But at the exact moment her family gave up on trying to reform her, Alana realized she would need to reform herself, and a mix of natural aptitude and newfound dedication saw her quickly leapfrog many of her peers and become a high-achieving graduate against all odds. At the University of Sydney, she completed a PhD focused on some of the most ancient galaxies in the visible universe, and published research that helped shine a new light on the processes that formed the very first stars. At the CSIRO, she continued her research as a Bolton postdoctoral fellow, and ultimately became a key member of the ASCAP program, a prelude to the multinational and multi-billion dollar square kilometre array. But challenges in this work environment prompted another change of tact and led Alana to begin an entirely new career as a founder, CEO, and director of deep tech companies including NanoX, Leo Cancer Care, and Quasar. Today, she works as a consultant and advisor, helping universities and research organizations plan for technology translation through her company, Big Science Advisory. Dr. Alana Fian, welcome to Lab Notes. Thanks, Leo. So I'd like to start by giving our guests the opportunity to introduce themselves, especially when their careers have had as much diversity as yours. How do you describe yourself and what you do? Wow. Um, how would I describe what I do? I take a whole lot of lessons learned from my career in physical sciences and physics, and astrophysics in particular, and I put them to use in innovation. What I mean by that is I, I look at the technologies that we used to use or that I'm used to using to ask and answer questions about the universe. And I look at applications outside of that field. And I look at whether there's a business case for repurposing those technologies uh, for new and impactful outcomes. For example, my background is in astrophysics and I've recently helped the astronomy group inside of CSIRO to spin out a company focused on repurposing the uh, radio astronomy receiver technologies for satellite communications. Yeah, I guess you're talking about Quasar Scientific there, and we'll definitely get to Quasar and your time at the CSIRO, but before we get that far, I want to ask a bit about what made you a scientist. Uh, was there something in your early life that triggered this passion, or, or did it come later? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, I have no story about being four years old, looking up at the stars and always wanting to be an astronomer. I truly fell into it thanks to some incredibly supportive mentors and role models in university. So I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do uh, when I was at school. I wasn't a particularly great student. I was, uh, you know, a quintessential rebel at school. I was dealing with a lot of stuff on the home front at the time. And really what kick-started my academic career, I think, is the point at which I actually quit school because I didn't like it so much because everybody was telling me what to do and at that point my mother finally threw her hands in the air and she said fine you do it your way but you're on your own and being put on my own and made to sort it out myself was the moment in which I 
knuckled down, had a good look around and went, oh, man, I actually want to go to university. I want to uh, do something probably with science. And so it was only in the end of year 10 or year 11 where I said, actually, I, I want to finish school and I want to do well and I want to go to university. And so I, I guess I should credit my mother at some point for just giving up on me um, and allowing me to find my own feet. And I did that and I, I knuckled down and I studied really hard for year, years 11 and 12, um, having come from basically the, uh, the first uh, six or so years of, of school, not really focusing at all. Uh, I did very, very well in my HSC. Um, as a result of some excellent teachers, uh, maths and physics teachers in particular, who I still remember fondly to this day. Uh, and then uh, the time came to choose something in university and I had really had no idea. And so what all good kids do, I guess, when they get a really high mark at, uh, in their HSC and they don't know what to do is they enrol in, in law. And uh, I was very, very good at physics and maths and I'd never done law at all. So I enrolled in sci a science law degree. Um, everybody telling me, oh my gosh, Thor, you must be so smart. That's so hard. How could you possibly do that? And I got through to the first library class in my first year in law, and they were talking about the differences between legislation and regulations. And everybody else in my, in my lecture knew what they were talking about, and I had no idea. And I just went, oh my God, I'm out. And so I dropped law. Now, that was actually a fantastic experience in hindsight because what it did was it freed up a whole semester of, of subjects that I had to pick up at the other side. So, of course, I stuck with science and I stuck with physics. But at the end of second year or halfway through second year, I was missing a whole bunch of subjects because I dropped out of law. And so I had to pick up some subjects and I didn't know what to pick up. And somebody uh, out of the blue suggested that Sydney Uni was running an astronomy course that I could do by this correspondence with UTS. And why don't I go and talk to them? And literally at that point, I didn't know the difference between a galaxy and a universe. I'd never thought of astronomy in my life, but I went over and I met two incredibly warm, generous people, one being Dick Hunstead uh, and one being Anne Green. I fell in love with astronomy just right then and there, and I never wanted to do anything else for years and years after that. So I eventually transferred from UTS to Sydney Uni and pursued uh, my career in, in astronomy. Um, it was the best thing I ever did. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story of your introduction to astronomy uh, there, Alana. And I, I did want to ask you about Dick Hunstead in particular, because he's someone that followed you through much of this early phase of your career and actually ended up as your PhD supervisor. And I also know he, he quite sadly passed away only a couple of years ago in 2020. So I wonder if you might be able to reflect on his impact on you and your early scientific career and how he shaped you into the researcher that you became. Yes, and uh, of course, the, the late, great Dick Hunstead has had a huge impact on many, many astronomy careers over the years, um, and it was very sad when he passed away. There were two, two main things that Dick did. He, he was the head of the astronomy group there and, and really just so focused on helping students. His door was open the whole time. I guess he recognised the interest, and, um, and he supported me to move over from UTS to Sydney Uni. I then pursued a special project with him. So in third year uni, you could do a special project. I did that in astronomy. I then went on to do my honours with him. And at the end of my honours degree, when I, when I wanted to do a PhD, I picked up two more supervisors along the way. Uh, Dick remained my primary supervisor and my secondary supervisor was an equally amazing, generous, supportive man who went on to be my lifetime mentor, and that is Ron Akers, 
who was the founding director of the Australia Telescope National Facility as well. And between these two gentlemen um, over the years, they did nothing but support me and encourage me and bring out my, my best and really believed in me. And that made all of the difference when, you know, the shit hit the fan, so to speak. It, it made all the difference to have people like that who were just all in for the science and all in for the growing of new astronomers. Uh, I, I just can't speak highly, highly enough of those two people. Amazing, Alana. We'll definitely come to why it was so important to have those people in your corner. But first, can we talk about the science of your PhD thesis and the topic itself, which was active galaxies at high redshift, gas, jets, and star formation. These are obviously huge ideas to, to be discussing, but is there any way you can bring it down to earth and kind of explain your PhD research to the everyman? <laughs> now, you're, now you're making me think back to my astronomy research, which is, uh, wow, well, I haven't thought about it in a long time. But, but essentially, you know, the big, the big question are how did galaxies form? What happened when the, when the universe first created its first stars and its first black holes? How did those galaxies form? What was the interaction between star formation and black hole radiation and energy and and was there an interaction so we were particularly interested in really giant galaxies so massive elliptical galaxies that have supermassive black holes at their center and i mean billions of times the mass of the sun because these black holes are quite active and they shoot out huge amounts of radiation which you see uh, uh, largely at radio wavelengths hence their term radio galaxies um, huge amounts of radiation and that radiation can be seen in some circumstances to be triggering star formation, which begs the question, uh, as, my, as my mentor Ronique, as my supervisor used to say, which came first, the black hole or, or the star formation? Because what you could see in the early universe was stars forming along jets of radiation from black holes. So this was a completely out-of-the-box crazy idea, which uh, was just crazy enough to get me and Ron interested, or Ron and I interested, I should say, and so really the PhD was a general study of active galaxies, so large elliptical galaxies with active black holes and how they grew and how their stars formed. And in the process, we looked very carefully at particular um, markers and traces of star formation. So we were looking for the carbon monoxide gas which is a nice signature of star formation in the early universe. And in fact, we were, we were amongst the first in the world to find carbon monoxide emission using uh, radio receivers. So that was really exciting. Absolutely. And I think people could probably hear your passion even in that answer and even digging back the memories from 10 or 20 years ago there. Um, yeah, look, the, the fondest memories, I've got to say, that I, that I miss now that I don't do astronomy day to day is, you know, being at the telescope up all night, observing all night, having your supervisor, you know, there till three, four, five, six in the morning, working out the physics with you, looking at the, like, it's just, these are memories and experiences that are invaluable. And that's probably something a lot of people don't, don't think a lot about for astronomers. Quite a lot of the observations are at night. You kind of have to work at odd hours. You have to work when, yeah, so if you're an optical astronomer, you have to work at night, obviously, because, you know, the sun's up during the day. Radio astronomy, you can actually work 24 hours a day um, and you're driven simply by when your galaxy or star or favourite object is over the horizon. And that could be at any time. So if you're lucky, your object you want to study is up, you know, between nine and five. Uh, but normally, it, it, you know, it rises at 2 a.m. and, you know, the alarm goes off at half past one and there's your working day starting. But the memories are fantastic. 
prepared me for childbearing years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I I did very briefly scan your thesis. I I didn't absorb all of it, I'm sure. But I want to pick out something that's probably a little left field. I read your acknowledgements page and I was struck by one of the most unique and unusual acknowledgements I've ever seen in a thesis. Finally, I'd like to express my gratitude and sheer relief to Qantas for safely getting me everywhere I needed to go without falling out of the sky once. Now, was this a reflection of the amount of travel you were needed to do in your project or does your fascination for space end, you know, from from when your feet leave the ground? Believe it or not, um, throughout my PhD, I developed a severe fear of flying. And that is in spite of the fact that we travelled a lot. I mean, astronomers travel a lot, not just to go to observations, but astronomy is an international collaborative science. And so you are always on an aeroplane. And I had a growing, growing fear of flying to the point where I would, I think I can say this, I would need Valium and red wine just to get me on the plane. And I learned which flights had the least turbulence relative to the time of day and the season. So you would never fly from Sydney to Narrabri in summer in the afternoon. That was the bumpiest bit. Uh, And you would never fly to Canberra in the morning, except the foggiest bit. Um, And so that's what my gratitude to Qantas was because I honestly didn't think I was going to make it. Wow, Alana. I mean, it's a testament to your willpower and persistence that you continue to travel and complete your astronomy career despite these challenges and you know it it wasn't the last challenge you were to face. I know the next step in your career was a postdoctoral fellowship at the CSIRO and this was not always a happy place for you but to start this story I'd really like to start with the happy elements of this which is the science and the infrastructure that you were able to access. To set the scene for our audience primarily I'll just say that The CSIRO is not only one of Australia's premier scientific organisations, but it's also particularly well known in the world of astronomy because Australia itself is very well placed being the southern hemisphere and sparsely populated to make astronomy observations. And also CSIRO has some world-class infrastructure, telescopes and the like that enable this kind of work to happen. And Alana, you were part of the Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder program, which was kind of setting the scene for a international and multi-billion dollar effort to build what was known as the Square Kilometre Array, a project that's still going on today. Now, I'm mindful that it might be hard to unpick the personal from the professional here, but can you talk us through the scientific elements of what you were working on at the CSIRO with your Bolton Fellowship and later with the ASCAP program? So, yeah, my relationship with CSIRO and the astronomy group was much earlier than the Bolton Postdoctoral Fellow. I, I was a vacation student when I was in my undergrad year. And then obviously Ron Eakers was my PhD supervisor. So I had a, a relationship already before I was awarded the Bolton, um, which was a fantastic experience. It was a chance to do pure research in what I, what I loved, get my hands dirty with the instrumentation, learn about the instrumentation. Uh, very impressive group, very, very inspirational people in that group whom I respected greatly as I got through my postdoctoral fellowship probably I was a three-year postdoc I think I got to the end of the second year and it it was already really clear to me that I wasn't going to do pure research for my whole life I was already starting to get interested in you know the precursor to the square kilometer array which was as as cap it's now called it went through a few iterations of its name back then 
which is a prototype or a pathfinder for the square kilometre array to, part to, to prototype phased array technologies. And I was getting my hands dirty and interested already in the science management and the instrumentation um, and engineering side of things. Uh, so I knew that just being pure academic, you know, observing, writing papers, publishing papers wasn't for me. And uh, I'm, yeah, I am very impressed. The, the quality of the engineering group in, the, in is, is second to none in the world. It really is a sensational group. I had a, had a really, really good time. Uh, and toward the end of my postdoc, I was actually offered and accepted a role uh, as the joint project scientist for the ASCAP telescope. That gave me the chance to do half my time research and half my time uh, helping to run the scientific project. So set up the, the science cases, have a look at, you know, how those science cases related to the engineering requirements for the telescope in the very early days when this was setting up. Toward the end, obviously, there was adversity and that's on the public record and very, very well known. But I took all the skills and the experiences that I'd learnt in astronomy and science management, in engineering and instrumentation, and I built a, a, a completely different career. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I guess setting aside that sadness and frustration with the way that you kind of had to leave the CSIRO, it does look like you've made a, made a fantastic career after that in the science commercialization space and a lot of these really applied projects, which is you know, probably the other end of the scientific spectrum to, to blue sky astronomy, which is very much about fundamental understanding. The- I, will say, I will say, though, that I returned to CSIRO, and that says a lot. Four or five years later, I went back to the same group. They had made a lot of changes. Um, I had I have nothing but respect for the whole group. Um, and they brought me back to actually, I guess, merge the blue sky research with the business aspects, recognising the value or the, the, the latent capability and value of the technologies in there. So whilst I had a, a tough experience years, years before, and I don't want to make that out to be anything less than it was, it's a different place and it's changed a lot. And testament to that is that I, I went back and I spent fantastic three years back with them and I'd do it again. That, that's really fantastic to hear, Alana, that, that it has improved and so has your experiences there. Can I ask about this interim phase, though? You, you moved across to Sydney University uh, after CSRO as an appointment as a research fellow there and also got involved in, in Leo Cancer Care. I, th- I think the project was originally called Nano X. Can you tell us about those two dual roles that you held for the next few years and how they interacted? Yeah, so uh, when I made the decision to, to leave astronomy, I'd always in the back of my head known that one day I would probably leave astronomy for a bit and if I did, it would be into medical physics because it interested me. It's quite closely related in terms of the applications. And so I, I did. I joined the Radiation Physics Laboratory, which is run by Professor Paul Keel, who's an extremely well-known and uh, highly regarded medical physicist in his field. And I quickly took on the most crazy harebrained idea that Paul had, which was that you don't need to deliver radiotherapy, which is megavolt radiation, You don't need to deliver it in huge multi-million dollar machines in large metropolitan hospitals. You can, in fact, decentralise radiotherapy, make it more affordable and smaller and allow rural, regional areas to access it more fairly if you make some major changes to the machine itself and the technologies. And those major changes were that instead of rotating a megavoltage X-ray accelerator around a patient, 
you could fix the radiation and the accelerator and you could rotate the patient instead. And I thought this was fantastic. I you know, had had zero experience in medical physics, in clinical physics, uh, with clinical teams, with doctors and with patients. So I thought as a physicist would think, well, yeah, of course you do it that way. What could be the problem? And so Paul and I worked on that project for a number of years. Um, and at the same time, we both took up the opportunity to do some medical device commercialization training, which was a new course being run well, being funded by the New South Wales Health. So Julian Skinner was the health minister at the moment, and she had a great plan to create more resmeds and more cochleas for New South Wales. And the way she was going to do this was by providing funding to early stage companies to commercialise. And the way she was going to prepare people to get funding was to put them through a course because scientists like me with all these crazy ideas, um, ideas are great. Every, every academic institution has plenty of ideas, but translating those ideas into a, a really prudent business proposition is a long way from what any of us academics know. And so they put together this training program, which was delivered at the time by ATP Innovations, now called Cicada Innovations. And Paul and I did that. And it was the first time I'd heard words like IP, regulatory, reimbursement, value propositions, business model canvases. These were all foreign things to me. And I was like, I, I really don't understand. All I knew was that if I was going to rotate patients and not rotate accelerators, then I should probably know that somebody was going to pay for it at the other end. Um, off the back of that course, we spun out the company. We called it NanoX. And that is a living, breathing company called Leo Cancer Care to this day. Yeah, and clearly this journey for you from research scientist to founder and CEO of this growing company, Leo Cancer Care, was a pretty significant one in terms of your experience and knowledge in this space. But the company itself also continues to grow. I know they moved across to the US and recently closed a Series B round worth $25 million, which will fund a substantial amount of R&D as they pursue this growth journey they're on. But I note that you didn't follow the company to the US and instead you've decided to put those skills into practice supporting new deep tech founders through CSRO and later through your private consultancy. Can you tell us what were the lessons that you drew from this Leo Kentzker journey and how that's made you I guess better as an advisor and as a director to other deep tech companies? So there were a lot of learnings with Leo. I went from being an astronomer to a, to a CEO fairly quickly mistakes get made along the way of course they do but we had a lot of successes we were successful in being awarded a lot of money through new south wales and we made it a lot of headway until the point at which the company itself needed to go overseas to get the investment that a medical device company needs the learnings i think the first one really truly is you, you have to go with your gut you have to trust your own instincts um, there are a lot of people in the startup space who can help um, I've had some incredible support over the years by a very small core group of people that understand that balance between academia and commercialization. And it's really hard. You know, getting investment is a whole different ballgame to getting grants. And that's something that takes a long time to understand that, that the investors aren't investing in your amazing technological ability to create a sensitive signal to noise ratio of four. And so the language changes a lot. So there's been a lot of learnings and patience has been one of them. 
you know, there's that saying, you see one, do one, teach one. I think you need to, you know, see five, do five, fail five, teach five. Fantastic. That's, I think that's a perfect, perfect summary of it, Alana. Let, let, let's move back. You mentioned earlier, you did return to CSIRO. It's, it's about this time, 2018, something like that, 2019, you returned to CSIRO. Can you tell us what gave you the confidence to go back to, to CSIRO after all that had happened? What, what drew you back in? Was it the excitement of the technologies? Was it the people who were there now? Oh, yeah, that was Tasso. I mean, I knew this group really, really well, and I've always had a lot of respect for the engineering group. And so what would happen uh, as I was running Leo, from time to time I'd get a call from Tasso, who's the head of the engineering and technologies group in the astronomy group, who I know really well. And from time to time he'd call and he'd say, we're under all this uh, pressure from the new CEO of CSIRO, a guy called Larry Marshall, and he wants us to commercialise. I don't really know what that means. So we need somebody who has a background in astronomy and technologies and understands astronomy, but also knows how to commercialise. And so I'm calling you, can you help? And so from time to time, we'd have a bit of a chat about what's going on. And, you know, I, I knew from my work with the ASCAP project and the phased array project and some early doubling I did with that group on maybe repurposing those phased arrays for breast cancer screening, I knew that the phased arrays uh, and a number of other receiver technologies in that group were translatable into other areas and, and other industries. And so it was a very attractive proposition for me to come back in, take a good look at the IP and the technologies and help to build a business case using the skills that I'd learnt with uh, NanoX slash Leo but in a, in a way that made me feel like I was returning to my roots, which is, you know, astronomy and astrophysics and instrumentation. Uh, but really it was Tasso and, and Ron and people who I really respected in that group that were still there and that were really supportive and, and encouraging of, of me to come back and, uh, and do that for them. And so it was a really easy choice for me to make when Leo moved overseas and I chose not to have anything else to do with them to go back and have something to do with people that I really respected and trusted and had the same motivations as I did in terms of generating impact from technologies. Yeah, fantastic. And, and you did work on quite a number of, I guess, projects and, and translation efforts within CSIRO, but I want to focus on one in particular because it's one you ultimately kind of became a director of, a company called Quasar that we mentioned at the start. Can you, can you tell us about that technology, about the spin-out journey and where the company is now? Yeah, so pretty much straight away when I when I went back into CSIRO, I, I had my eye on a couple of technologies, but the main one, really the standout one, is the phased array receiver technologies, which CSIRO designed and developed and built for its square kilometre array pathfinder telescope or ASCAP in Western Australia. Now, these are, I guess the way to think about them is, is the equivalent of going from a single pixel camera to a 30 pixel camera. So you go from being able to see one pixel at a time to 30 pixels at a time. And in astronomy, that's a really, really big deal because it opens up the universe to see huge uh, fields of view instantaneously. Uh, and, and, and you do this with basically it's a flat panel detector. For ASCAP, it was a checkerboard array. And instead of generating beams with the aperture of a moving dish, you synthesize beams electronically by digitizing the radiation at each element. But essentially what you've got is a situation where instead of seeing one object at a time, you can see multiple at a time. 
So with a little bit of digging and market research, we really managed to convince the powers that be that you could repurpose this technology such that you could track and communicate with multiple satellites at the time, and not just any satellites, but, but moving satellites. So satellites that are in low Earth orbit that aren't fixed. Because one of the major problems is that uh, satellites that are sitting up in geostationary orbits always point in the same direction, and you can have a nice big dish staring at that geostationary satellite, no problem communicating. Now, the market is being flooded now with Space 2.0, as it's called, where everyone is building their own constellations for IoT, for Earth observation, for military purposes. Obviously, internet satellite is a big deal. And so you're going to have thousands, tens of thousands of low Earth objects moving around really, really quickly. And so the idea that you can track these things with parabolic antennas moving mechanically becomes a little bit unfit for purpose. Now, if you can generate electronic beams that can track these things across the sky without moving a mechanical dish, that's great. But if you can generate multiple or hundreds of synthesized beams on the sky at once and track and communicate with hundreds of these satellites at once, now you've really got something that's attractive to replace uh, mechanical dishes or, or complement mechanical dishes. And so Quasar Satellite Technologies was born out of the idea to repurpose these phased arrays that were built as feeds for astronomy into flat panels that could do ground station as a service. So you build a, build a company that has this proprietary and unique technology that services uh, low Earth orbit, mid Earth orbit and geostationary orbiting satellites all at once. So, so the company was born almost a year ago. It'll be a year in March. And we created it using a company creation model. Uh, that is, you bring in the idea and the technology and the capability to deliver the technology, and that was CSIRO. You bring in some uh, sophisticated investment and, I guess, the business now surround venture investment, and that was main sequence that came in. And you bring in customers early who see the value and want to help you get to market quickly. And so in our case... We actually brought in industry partners, four of them, Australian industry partners in defence and IoT to help us get this technology to market. And that was it. Fraser Satellite Technologies was born with the support of the Physical Sciences Fund from the New South Wales Office of the Chief Scientist. Yeah. And as you say, this company is very young. I'm sure our audience can check in and see how it's going with news stories. But for yourself, you're continuing to support this company in the role of a director, which perhaps literally gives you a seat at the table where the decisions are made about the strategy and direction of Quasar. Can you tell me a little bit about that role and how you contribute to the company as a director? So I sit on the board of directors as the CSIRO's nominated director. So each of the owners of the company nominate their own director. And in CSIRO's case, they've nominated me. So the board of directors' job is to govern and to ensure that uh, it, it succeeds. And so my job is to look out for the best interests of the company and help make collective decisions with the rest of the board to ensure fast growth and value and to build a multi-billion dollar world-class satellite communications and space domain awareness company. And that's what we're doing right now. And so recently you may have seen an announcement. We brought in a independent chairperson whose uh, name is Dave Skellen. Dave Skellen, of course, being the founder of Radiata and of Wi-Fi. And so we're very pleased to have him as our 
fifth director. Yeah, definitely a luminary of Australian science translation there, so I'm sure he'll bring a lot to the board discussions. We should move on in the interest of time and get to your final role because you've started your own consultancy, Big Science Advisory, where you're, I guess, selling these skills and this knowledge out to others who might want to support science translation. Can you tell us, I guess, the story of how that entity came into being and and what types of companies and organizations you are supporting with this skill set that you've developed? Yeah, so so toward the end of when we got Quasar off the ground, I was approached by Astronomy Australia Limited, a not-for-profit organisation working very, very closely with the department to help manage astronomy infrastructure funding around the country, and they're very interested in industry engagement. And so really for the last 12 months, I've been working half of my time actually with AAL to uh, look at building another quasar, but for a different astronomy organisation. And so AAL had me working quite closely with a, a university and helping them start the process of really doing a technology audit and early market positioning for what they've got, trying to identify the value propositions and customers. Because astronomy, by its very nature, is not that close to industry and commercialisation. And so thinking about translating technologies goes as far as really just thinking about it and putting some commercial rigour around that is is really what what I was helping AEL to do. And it became really clear that, you know, the latent capability inside of astronomy, astrophysics and other big science, physical sciences groups around the country and universities and research organisations is quite remarkable and bridging the gap to being able to go to the BD department in that university and say, here's what we need to do and here's what we've got on the commercialisation group. It's a little bit harder for astronomy because it's just so far from industry. And in astronomy's case, you're repurposing one technology for a whole other market and whole other customer, which is a bit different, for example, than medical research in a university where you're researching for an outcome and and a customer that you already know. And when you get there, you then commercialize into that same market that you know. And so half of my time was already being spent with AAL looking at other other ways we can help astronomy in Australia commercialize. And so I thought, well, it's time to, to see whether I can do this more broadly, because from what I've seen inside of groups around the country, there's some amazing technologies and sensing. And so I thought, well, now's a good time in my life to take another jump and take another risk and what could possibly go wrong. And, uh, and big science was born. Yeah, no doubt it's going to be another exciting journey for you, Alana. And if any organizations or listeners want to get in touch and to tap into your expertise, we will leave a link to Big Science Advisory in the description for this podcast. But before we let you go, there's one final question I'd like to ask. As we've heard today, you've been involved in the science commercialization journey at lots of different stages, from fundamental research to being a founder and a CEO, and more recently as an advisor and as a director to deep tech companies. Is there anything that you've learned from this journey that you wish you had known at the start? Some advice you could give to a young scientist or entrepreneur that would help them start their own deep tech journey? Look, I think if you're going into it to make a squillion dollars, then you ought not bother. I have only ever done this because I believed in it and I, and I wanted to see the, the technology succeed. At the point at which it's going to make a squillion dollars, you need to bring in corporate people whose job it is to do that sort of stuff. 
But early stage, really early stage, where you see a technology and you see a market and you just want to, to dive in and, and, and work out whether there's a market pull, really the best thing you can do, and it's what people tell you to do over and over again, is get out of the office and talk to people. You need to ensure that what you've got is being demanded. If you're pushing your technology onto a customer or pushing your technology into the market without first checking that the market wants it, then it's it's, it's probably not going to end well for you. Um, and you're almost certainly not going to win grants and the types of investment that you need to, to get started. So you need to always, always start with the customer and make sure that you are being pulled by industry not pushed by technology and not driven by um, a need to drive a Lamborghini in three years because it just doesn't happen. Yeah, absolutely, Lana. I mean, deep tech entrepreneurship is hard at the best of times, but even the ones that are successful take years, if not decades, to come to fruition. So you certainly can't expect to be driving a Lamborghini anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea that the hero founder develops something in their garage and ends up you know, being a squillionaire and valued at, you know, unicorn money. They're lovely, lovely stories, but the successful ones, the successful technology stories over the years, they really didn't happen like that. They happen because CSIRO or a university or another research organisation sees it early, backs it early, takes a risk to look at it early um, and supports you right the way through. No one's doing these types of things in their garage. Absolutely. Alana, it, it takes a village. It's been a thought-provoking discussion. I can't thank you enough for sharing your time and your story with us today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. My pleasure. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can always check out the episode description for links to our guest's biography, as well as all the organizations we've mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with sounds provided by Purple Planet Music and mixing by Dr. Narrett Harris. If you've liked what you've heard, please remember you can subscribe to the channel and also check out past interviews for any stories you might have missed. But it's goodbye for now, so until next time, keep inventing.